Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. To remind you, in recent weeks what we've seen is Paul argue for the, for the unity of all saints. Right, Everyone whom Jesus reconciles to God, he has reconciled to one another and places them in an assembly together. We've seen Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, explain his calling to declare the mystery of Christ and to engage in the ministry of Christ. Now in this morning's text, he turns to prayer because he wants the Lord's church, in this case the Lord's church at Ephesus, to fully embrace its calling and be empowered by God's hand. So let's start reading Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful to be assembled here together, and we are thankful, Lord, that you are a God who allows yourself to be worshipped by such flawed creatures as us. And we praise you for what you've done and for who you are and for the way you've revealed yourself in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would please bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that it would accomplish your purpose according to your promise. We ask, Lord, that we as your assembly would see ourselves in the love of Christ and empowered with your fullness and that we would behave in a way that is befitting of the church of God. Please forgive us of our failures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We know at this point in our series with Ephesus that Ephesus was the second largest city of the Roman Empire only after Rome itself. The the goddess Artemis and the temple dedicated to her name was sort of the the prize of the city of Ephesus. It was outside the city where it could be seen by all. And Paul had spent three years preaching, you know, shaking the very economy of Ephesus to the core with the gospel. So widespread had been the gospel that the silversmith started a riot because people stopped buying their little silver shrines of Artemis. And now at the time he's writing this letter, ten years have passed and Paul is imprisoned in Rome and he writes to the church at Ephesus 
which within the church it contains, we know, both Jews who had sacrificed offerings at the temple in Jerusalem and Gentiles who had spent their early life bowing down to those little silver idols of Artemis. These church members in Ephesus, they're they're ridiculously different from one another. And the tension in the church, I think, bore out those differences. You could almost imagine the the Jewish Christians saying, well, you, you Gentiles, you have to become more Jewish in order to satisfy God. And the Gentiles arguing, you know, you're, no, your Jewishness is impeding our liberty. The Jews say, you know, get your pork away from our plates. And the Gentiles would say, keep your knives out from under my robe. It was, it was tense. This is why Paul's letter is so church-focused. How, how such an assembly could reconcile with one another to worship together, much less to be motivated to work together, is the overarching theme of Paul's letter here. He insists, as we've seen, they have to reject their identity as Jews or their identity as Gentiles and embrace their identity in the body of Christ that they are identified with and in Jesus. And even today, our churches suffer from this same kind of sort of self-imposed identity theft. We as a church have lost sight of who and what we are. Paul's prayer in this section, and it is a prayer, is that God would indwell and empower his church to act like the body of Christ that it is. And to do this, he, he addresses those, through this letter, the Gentiles who worshipped at the temple of Artemis and the, the Jews who had worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem and shows, look, those temples, that's not where God is. That's not God's place, nor do they display God's power. Instead, the apostle portrays the Almighty God in this passage as an encouragement to his church. He gives this vivid depiction of the indwelling, empowering God that should drive us to our knees with him in prayer. As we see as he goes through this text, the description of God's power, the dwelling place of God's power, and the display of God's power. Let's talk about the description of God's power first. Now, I just want you to know, we'll, do, we'll, we'll deal with the text a little differently this morning. Instead of working our way through it slowly, we're going we're gonna to go through it. We're going to back up and go through it again, okay? The description of God's power. How will you get your mind around God and who he is and what he can do? Because the reality is humanity likes a God who does nothing and demands nothing. We want a a God who's like a domesticated house pet. You know, he's panting there at our heels, this faithful sidekick who is awaiting our prayerful command. And when we tell him to do something and he does it, we might give him a, you know, oh, you're a good boy, as thanks. But when you know God as Paul knows God, you're going to fall to your knees before him. And so let's get to know this God for a moment. Paul gives five essential descriptions of God's power. First, his family is massive. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. If you want to show the immensity of God, it is appropriate to describe it 
in terms of the size of his family. He is, he is the father, Paul says in verse 15. And his father, he has a, a family that comprises all of heaven and earth. Now I want you to understand, we cannot confuse the family of God with the church of God. But that doesn't make the family unimportant. Sometimes caring for a family can seem like an overwhelming responsibility to us. But imagine every believer who has ever trusted in the promise and work of God is part of his family and he cares for them as a loving father. Whether they still are on their, in their walk on this earth or whether they've passed into his presence in heaven, God is the father of this massive family. And so that's my brother Harry over there, and then I have a brother Randy over there, and I have a, a, a sister Melody, and I have a sister Loretta. In the presence of Jesus, I have brothers and sisters. I have a, a brother Moses, and a brother Paul, and a brother Peter. I have sisters Mary and Martha who are sitting there with their brother Lazarus, who's my brother as well. Most importantly, we have our loving elder brother, Jesus, who though he was the only begotten son of God, lovingly purchased our adoption into God's eternal family of rescued sinners. For how many countless millions of people is God the Father? For how many is he operating as a good father should with all the responsibilities of leading that family? He's overseeing and guiding and disciplining and providing. You want to start to get your mind around God? He is God the Father and he guides and he, he guards and he gives gifts to a family that is massive. Second, his glory is incalculable. Verse 16, Paul says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. If you were going to estimate God's glory by assigning it monetary value, what kind of monetary value could you put on it? What number could you possibly come up with that would express the substance of God's glory? When we know that it was, you know, the glory of God himself is so splendid that when Moses asked God to show me your glory, God's response was, if you see it, you'll die. The glory of God was of such overwhelming brightness that God put Moses in a little cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand and passed by and gave Moses a little glimpse and Moses' face continued to shine with the brightness of it for days. To calculate it, you'd have to add to that the contents of the area of the tabernacle and temple, both of which were said to be filled with God's glory, although the angels... In Isaiah 6, saying the whole earth is filled with his glory. You'd have to add to that anything good that you ever do in your life because Paul said whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God and multiply that by the infinity of the universe. Psalm 19 verse 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. How can you calculate or describe God's glory? At the Mount of Transfiguration, when the 
glory of Jesus started to shine through human flesh, the three disciples who went with him fell to the ground and they hid their faces. They, they couldn't take the display of it. It was just too much for them to look at. John later wrote in his gospel, and some will tell you he didn't include an account of the transfiguration, but in introducing Jesus, John says in his gospel, we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father was full of grace and truth. I don't know how you calculate the glory of God. You're not going to do it on an abacus or a scientific calculator or the, the world's greatest supercomputer. Paul doesn't sort of strain for unattainable superlatives. He's, he's satisfied with simply saying, oh, it's the riches of his glory. God's rich glory is incalculable. The glory of God is beyond your ability to grasp. Third, his love is immeasurable. I'm going to skip down a couple of verses, but we'll, we'll pick up what we missed when we come back through in a minute. But you'll see at the end of verse 17 that Paul's talking about God's love. And then at the beginning of verse 19, he's talking about to know the love of Christ. And so sort of sandwiched into these statements about God's love, he says in verse 18, to be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. All right, y'all, this doesn't take rocket surgery or brain science to figure out. How many dimensions can you measure? We live in a three-dimensional world, but when you look at verse 18, tell me what Paul's doing there. There's a breadth and length and depth and height. There's, he, he gives like these four dimensions, and he knows he's just done this, which puts the love of Christ beyond any human scale. I don't know Paul's purpose of those dimensions if it's not to tell us in no uncertain terms the love of Christ is immeasurable by any standard that we have. It is deep enough to descend from the glory of heaven itself to be nailed to the cross. It is broad enough to be encompassed by and encompass every kindred and tongue and people and nation. It's, it's high enough according to Ephesians 2 verse 6 to seat us with him in heavenly places. And it's so long that it extends from the counsel of God in eternity past to our union with Christ in eternity future. I don't have a device that can measure four dimensions like this. The love of God is immeasurable. The grace of God is unknowable. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes understanding. The expression of God's immeasurable love is the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. We sing that song, Grace Greater Than Our Sins, and the songwriter describes it well as wonderful, infinite, matchless grace, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. The love of Christ expressed through his death, burial, and resurrection is grace of unknowable size that is an undeserved gift and it's undeserved because we're not righteous we're we're sinners and when you realize just how much of a sinner you are how to the very core of your rotten soul you are an enemy enemy of God 
then the unknowable nature of his grace becomes all the more obvious. Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You and I are far greater sinners than we know, and that means God's grace for sinners is far beyond what we can know. You might experience grace, but merely knowing its existence and being part of God's uh, gracious salvation is feeling some small fraction of the comfort that it brings. You're never going to plumb to the depths of it. Paul says this undeserved gift of God's love, it passes knowledge. The grace of God is unknowable. His power is unimaginable. Verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly more than all we ask or think. God can do more than you think. I don't mean that God can work things out in ways that you can't think of, although that is true. I mean, in your wildest imaginations, you cannot possibly come up with something even close to the limit of God's power. He can do, Paul says, exceeding abundantly above whatever you could ask, or even think to ask. Which is an amazing statement because I'm a pretty creative guy. I can think of quite a bit. But this says God's thinking is above our thinking and God's ability is above our thinking. I need this because just as Paul described to the Romans, we sometimes find ourselves in situations where, you know, he said, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Have you ever been there? Have you been under some trial so severe, a barrier so high, some temptation so strong that you can't even think to ask God what, for, for what you need? You can't even imagine, Lord, this is what I want you to do because it's beyond your understanding. You don't even know what to ask for. Well, when we come to Ephesians 3, verse 20, it is a wonderful statement of God's omnipotence. He can do everything. But it is also this sort of breathtaking declaration of God's omniscience. He can do what you can't do, and he knows what you don't know. We have a God who is not constrained by our thinking. He is not limited by our asking. He's not obstructed by our circumstances. Listen, our God can lift any burden. He can open any door. He can remove any barrier. He can save any soul. He can heal any hurt. At one point, the the Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh, asked his prophet Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? And Jeremiah being being Jeremiah, balked for a while, but finally answered in chapter 32, verse 27, Oh, Lord God, behold, you made the heaven and the earth by your great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing that is too hard for you. This is great news for people whom God loves because God is able to do more for your good and for his glory than you could ever imagine in your mind. 
But listen, this is also bad news for the lost sinner because God is going to judge you for your sin. And when he does, your soul is going to fall for eternity into the dreadful wrath of a God whose power to punish your rebellion is beyond your imagination. So in review, as we sort of go through the text the first time and see Paul as he gives these descriptions of God's power, his His family is massive, his glory is incalculable, his love is immeasurable, his grace is unknowable, his power is unimaginable. You think you've got a handle on God and who he is and what he can do. I assure you, we don't. But now Paul goes forward to the dwelling place of God's power. We might see a little glimpse on the of the description of God's awesome power, but we haven't got to Paul's real point in the text yet. Paul not only wants the Ephesians to understand this description of God's power, but also the dwelling place. This this power resides in a container that's frankly too small to hold it. I like to use the example, and Joy, Joy laughs at me sometimes when I try to put away leftovers because I'm not good at estimating how much is left. And I know some of you are thinking, there's anything left? And sometimes there is. But I'll get a Tupperware dish and I'll try to put nine cups of soup into an eight-cup container. It doesn't work. It just makes sense that the container for something has to be bigger than what it contains. But Paul in this passage is going to make it clear that the content of God's unimaginable power far exceeds the container that it's put into. Because the container that God's power is put into (laughs) is little old you and me. Listen to this as we go back through it. His riches are available for your use. Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Paul is pleading in prayer for God to grant blessings to his church and to the members of the church according to the riches of his glory. Now we've seen that glory is like, it's beyond calculation, right? That means that his potential to give is beyond calculation. Paul's prayer is not that you will get some small portion of it. If you got a piece of God's riches, Paul would have said, you know, I I pray that God would grant you from his riches. But when Paul says according to, he's asking God to bless us in proportion with God's riches. Or you could describe it this way. If you met a billionaire and he took you out to McDonald's for a a Big Mac value meal, we'd say he was being a cheapskate, even if he splurged for a chocolate shake. Right? That would be giving from his riches. It wasn't giving much. But if you met that man and he gave according to his riches or in proportion to his riches, then then you're going to be taking one of those big, hefty display checks home. With what Paul is about to pray for the Lord's church, it is according to the riches of God's incalculable glory. That's some small portion of it. 
listen, the, the love of God and the guidance, the, the things that God will do for his glory, that is not, you know, handed out and dispensed in buckets. It's not there to be, you know, well, we've got our little portion and we're going to divide the cup full up until it's gone. Listen, the love and glory of God springs from the eternal fountain of God himself. That's the rich blessings here that Paul's asking for. Not because he hopes that it might happen, but because this is our reality according to God's own glory. His riches are available for our use. Next, his, his spirit gives strength to our lives. Verse 16, the end of verse 16. To be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. You are not living life alone and you're not living life according to your own power. If you've been saved by God's grace, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God and that power or might of God himself is at work in you. (laughs) Now you might not feel like that and you might not act like that, but you are indwelled by a divine partner, the Holy Spirit of God himself. How strong can you be if you're strengthened by the Holy Spirit? Well, maybe we have to ask ourselves, well, how strong is the Holy Spirit? What can he do? You know, the Spirit is equally credited in creation with the Father and the Son. Job 26, verse 13 says that God by his Spirit has garnished the heavens. And you know this, when the earth was without form and void, it was the Spirit of God that moved on the face of the waters. And so you are indwelled and empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit of creation, Paul says, in the inner man, that is inside of you. Not only is the Holy Spirit of God residing in you, but His Son dwells in your heart. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by him in your heart. Listen, you're not only indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is is Jesus' own promise. He said in John 14, 23, If any man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. If the love of Jesus is in you, then the life of Jesus is in you. Further, Paul's description here is that you've you've grown your roots down deep. You have sunk your foundation sure in the love of Jesus. He uses these terms to be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted is an an agricultural term. Christians are to be be rooted, to be firmly planted and steadfast in love, like a, a tree planted by a river. You are not just rolling along like the tumbling tumbleweeds. The idea of grounded is actually a construction term. The foundation of your life is sunk deep into the sure footing of Christ's love. And with Jesus in your heart, Paul goes on to say in verse 18, you can comprehend the immeasurable. Right? Look at verse 18 again. You may be able to comprehend with all saints... What is the breadth and length and depth and height? Remember that really cool statement with the immeasurable four-dimensional love of God? 
Well, you've got like a spiritual tape measure that enables you to calculate the incalculable. Paul says that you can comprehend with all saints the breadth and length and depth and height. I want to make sure that you understand that Paul's prayer here isn't that you might know and love Jesus more. Although, y'all, it will be great if you know and love Jesus more. But that's not what Paul's saying here. This is a call to better grasp the immensity of the love that Jesus has for you. So he says in verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now there is a key here. We just stop for a second in verse 18 because there's a, a key here that's sort of leading up to Paul's main point. We're going to get to it later, but I want you to see it in verse 18 for just a moment. Comprehending the love of Jesus is something that happens within a community of Jesus. He says that you may be able to comprehend with all saints this immeasurable love of Christ. There's probably two reasons for this. First off, if you see what Jesus has done for your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are going to see and understand more of Christ's love. But more importantly, brothers and sisters in Christ will comprehend the love of Jesus more when they display it to one another more. Don't be so arrogant as to think that you can do this alone. It takes the people of God to comprehend the love of God. Knowing the love of Jesus, it is not like it is a a final exam that just gets handed out to every student. It is a group project that gets given to the whole class. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4.12, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. See that Paul says, all the saints, not just the ones you like, not just the ones that you are comfortable with, not just the ones who look like you and dress like you and talk like you. Frankly, it's tempting to put this standard to it unless you've got people in your life who you love, who you know that if it wasn't for Jesus, you wouldn't love, then you're doing Christianity wrong. When you love all the saints, then you, in, the ver- in verse 19, know the love of Christ which passes understanding. I, I love that person, and it... Sorry, I didn't mean to point at Randy when I said it. I love that person, and it doesn't make sense why I would love that person. There is an immeasurableness to it. There is a, a passing understanding to it. When you undertake to behave lovingly towards them, you're a step closer to comprehending the immeasurable love of Jesus. Next, he says, you can be filled with all fullness of God. Verse 19. You might be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, there is not some part of God that you're missing. 
Verse 16 says you have his spirit in the inner man. Verse 17 says Christ is in our hearts. Verse 19 ends by saying you're filled with all the fullness of God. This passage is a wonderful statement on the Trinity. God the Father and Son and Spirit indwell and empower the life of a believer through every moment of their spiritual journey in this world. You're just a little piece of Tupperware that is, you know, stuffed full and bursting at the seams, right? You contain more than what you're actually capable of holding. Now listen, be clear. (laughs) You aren't God and God's not you. Let's not get this mistaken. That's not what we're saying. But you are going to display the love and long-suffering and gentleness and mercy and goodness and grace of the Almighty God because you are filled with all the fullness of God. God in all His goodness is what fuels your life. And it's not for your own credit or your own cause or through your own power. It is, Paul says next, it's His power that is at work in you in verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. It's not according to our own power. It's by the power of God that is at work inside us. It is that unimaginable power which is able to do more than we can ask, more than we can even think to ask, since your wildest imagination cannot begin to dream of this power, don't even think about taking credit for it. It's God's power in God's people for God's glory. Philippians 2, 13, Paul says, For it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's his power that is at work in us. The tempting thing for Baptist preachers to do is to get into Ephesians chapter 3 and just try to get to verse 21 as quick as you can. It's taken us a while. Hopefully you'll see that verse 21 isn't just about Baptist doctrine, but it is about application. I'm convinced if you don't kneel down with the Apostle Paul in that Roman prison and get your mind around this prayer he's been praying from verse 14 through verse 20, you're not ever going to really see the glory he's talking about in verse 21. doesn't matter how well you can quote that verse. We've seen the description of God's power and the dwelling place of God's power. Let's see the display of God's power. Now, <coughs> look at verse 14 again. Paul is on his knees before God. As great as the Apostle Paul is, he's not the display of God's power in this passage. In verse 15, there's this entire family of saved people spanning heaven and earth who are called by the name of God the Father. But that family is not the display of God's power in this passage. You, as an individual, we've seen, well, you are You are indwelled, you're empowered by the Father, Son, and Spirit. But you 
are not the complete revelation of this display of God's power in this passage. If you want to see the promise of God's power, the the display of it, look at verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So just like summarize, think about what Paul's been saying here in order to to explain verse 21. We've talked about like the description of God's power, right? His, His family is massive. His glory is incalculable. His love is immeasurable. His grace is unknowable. His power is unimaginable. And the dwelling place of that power is in every believer within the assembly, right? His riches are available for your use. His spirit gives strength to your life. His son dwells in your heart. You can comprehend that immeasurable love of God. You you can be filled with all the fullness of God. His power is at work in you. Now I want you to imagine a bunch of believers just just out there as, as individuals. They're filled by the fullness of God and his immeasurable love, his incalculable glory, the unknowable grace, all that unimaginable power is in them. Alone, they are a powerful force for God's use. But when they come together into one location, this concentrated army for the purpose of God's glory, that's the church that's being described in verse 21. That's the group of people you are sitting among right now. I know we don't think that way. Surely we don't see ourselves that way. Because we know all our faults and we know all the things that we're afraid of and and we know our weaknesses. But listen, that's still us. The Apostle Paul knew all his own faults and his own fears, but he accomplished great things for the glory of God, all while recognizing and embracing his weaknesses. Right? He said in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, right, clay pots, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, right? Earthen vessels, clay pots, that's us, this immeasurable love and unknowable grace, the unimaginable power of God in a clay pot. And that's our church. I know it's our church because verse 21, the promise there is that that awesome power of God indwelling and empowering members of the church at Ephesus is a promise that's continued perpetually to bring him glory. You see that right throughout all ages, world without end. The church of Jesus Christ will be this. It will not fail. That temple of Artemis in Ephesus is in ruins today. You can go there and see where it used to be. There's like one pillar that stands where a wonder of the ancient world used to be located. For the Jews, the, the, the temple that was in Jerusalem, there is now just a, a single, essentially it's a, an old retaining wall that's there, and they call it the wailing wall, and they come and they, they weep and cry and mourn over the loss of their holy place. But what remains of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today? <laughs> Look around you, you see it, you're here. 
It is what it has always been, and it's doing what it's always done. It's bringing glory to God. Our church is a collection of believers who are indwelled and empowered by the unimaginable strength of God himself. And so how could we fail? We could fail by not trying. I know the tendency is to say, oh, we're, we're few. <laughs> we're so frail. What can we do? Yet our greatest limitation is what we put on ourselves. Our problem is that we would rather talk about the awesome power of God than actually tap in and use and implement the awesome power of God. But I would plead with you, embrace this passage. Stop asking, well, what can we do? Instead, focus on the real question. When it is God's power at work in God's people for God's glory, what can we not do? And I know some would say, Brother Jason, just give up. Nothing is going to change. But Paul says in verse 20, God can do more than you can ask or that you can even think to ask. And that statement doesn't seem like a very big deal to us because we don't ask for much and it's like our thinkers are rusted and broken. If God did anything today, it would probably be more than we've asked or thought to ask. So go ahead and think. Go ahead and and ask. But God is not limited to your asking or thinking. He's not limited by anything. And so now, what, what will you do with this? Like, if we've looked at this passage and we've, we've seen it correctly, what will you do with this? Do you look at this church, this assembly, and think there's something that we should be doing? And yet you are waiting for someone else to do it, as if you are not a spirit-indwelled, divinely empowered part of the body of Christ. Are you actively involved in bringing God glory or are you just coming on Sunday morning because you think showing up is your spiritual gift? Well, I was here when service started and I heard amen at the end. Put my time in, bye. If Jesus himself were standing here this morning or in our community among the people around us, what would he be doing with his body? Think of it, we are his body. What, what things is it that we have left undone as a, as a church? We need to make up our minds to start living out the truths of this passage and be the body of Christ that we're called to be. As an individual, you need to make up your mind right now that you will fulfill your God-given, Christ-purchased, Spirit-filled purpose that you will be a fruitful and functional member of the body of Christ because the body of Christ does not need a useless appendix that it can do without. Starting this moment, we ought to behave like the indwelled and empowered children of God we are. 
Some of the ways to do that are very easy. If someone's hungry, make them a meal. If somebody's hurting, give them a hug. If somebody's struggling, be an encouragement and help them along. If someone's lost, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. That's the the good news that they need to hear so that they might gain his incalculable riches and his immeasurable love and know this, this unknowable grace that's available to them. God is a loving God with a massive family of every kindred and and tongue and, and people and nation that spans all of heaven and earth. And he has called us to go out and declare the gospel so that we find the other children in his family. We have we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have not yet been born again and adopted into his family. You know, we've been blessed recently to have families in the church expecting a child. They, they prepare and they plan and they go about with joyful expectation for a child who is yet to be born. Listen, the Lord's church should march forward prepared with a plan for reaching the children of God's family who are yet to be born. And we should do it with the joyful expectation of additions to our family. We can do this. More accurately, God can do this in us. We're designed to bring God greater glory than we could ever ask or even think to ask. And if we're faithful to him, he can and will use us in ways we cannot begin to imagine. I encourage you, I I plead with you, like, fall to our knees with the Apostle Paul and, and praise the Father for this awesome power and his son for this matchless grace and his spirit for his indwelling presence and then go forward and ensure the Lord that the world sees us as God's people empowered by God's power for God's glory. We should be the outworking of Jesus himself. 